3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday the 25th of April 2023 and it's 7am. My name is Fung and in the studio with me today uh, we've got Carnegie, Ashkin and Ifka. Good morning everyone. Morning. Morning. Hello. <laughs> how is everyone this week? Good. Great. Yeah, how are you? <laughs> Good. Um, rode my bike this morning. Uh, it was... Yeah, you, you broke your back. Uh, a road. I rode my I bike. Like, Ow. <laughs> I was like, "How are you here right now? <laughs> you should be in hospital." Uh, no, I, I rode my bike oh, this so morning. Oh, that's so fun. Um, and it was really cold and dark. Oh, yeah. Did you have the little flashlights on your? I did. Oh, nice. Yeah, but it was one of those things where I don't know. I feel like Ivka, you you sometimes ride your bike mm-hmm. to I the do. station. Not this morning though. Yeah, I don't like it. Was wasn't it was quite cold. And so I was like, oh, I could wear my gloves, but I know that as soon as I wear them, my hands will get too hot. And and I just yeah. need something sort of, maybe fingerless gloves or something like in oh, between. Nice. I think fingerless gloves are the way to go, yeah. for sure. Though then the tip of your fingers do just feel like they're going to fall off. I wish there was an easy way to remove your gloves without having to stop and remove mm. them. I'm pretty sure there's gloves that have the palm that's like open cut so it's like you can still kind of breathe um there's like surely biker gloves too I that's feel. true I've, there's yeah. like some like fabric i swear that yeah like... i feel like i should just look that up <laughs> but thank you <laughs> thank you brains trust for your for your help there um all right let's talk about uh what's happening on today's show ashkin um i know we're going to be revisiting a couple of um, pieces from other shows, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, we've got um, a piece from uh, the Climate Action Show and they did this really special Greenpeace episode um, and we've got an interview with Christine Rose who's one of the lead campaigners um, in like agricultural um, activism, I guess, um, around the climate. Um, yeah, and then we've also got um, Women on the Line brings you Auntie Alma Thorpe, um, which is really, really exciting. Um, yeah, and then after that, we've got an interview with Grace Hill from the Get a Room campaign, Students for Affordable Housing, and they're going to be organising a May Day rally as well. Yeah. Great. Uh, and then at 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking to Dr. Jessica Hambley, who is a senior lecturer at um, the ANU College of Law and is also co-director of Law Reform and uh, of the Law Reform and Social Justice Program, and uh, she'll be on the show to talk to us about Australia's cruel refugee policies and how they have impacted policies elsewhere in the world, uh, particularly in the UK. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and then for the end of our show at 8.15, we're just going to have a bit of a discussion about what's going on in India at the moment. Um, there's a case in the Supreme Court being heard by heaps of petitioners all over the country to legalise gay marriage, which is on its eighth day at the moment. So we'll get a bit of um, an overview and an update on what's happening there. 
Great. Well, how about we jump straight into our news headlines for today? So we're starting with a headline from Sudan. Um, fighting has erupted in Sudan eight days ago between the Army and Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF military group. The fighting broke out in Khartoum, um, as well as neighboring cities and other parts of the country, on the 15th of April, four years after long-ruling autocrat Omar al-Bashir was toppled during a popular uprising. This has stranded thousands of foreigners, including diplomats and workers, with chaos ensuing as foreign governments try to pull their nationals out and people try to flee. 400 people have been killed so far and thousands are trapped in their homes. While Australia doesn't have an embassy in Sudan, DFAT has said that at least 158 Australians and their family members are registered as being in Sudan currently and that the government was providing consular assistance. Yeah, and we've got um, more local news. So we've got a COVID-19 weekly data update from the Chief Health Officer. There were 6,052 COVID-19 cases reported in Victoria this week, um, an increase of 4% on the previous week. The average daily number of cases this week was 865, up from 830 last um, the week prior. Of Victorians aged 18 and over, 14% have recorded a vaccination or a COVID diagnosis in the past six months. So this means that 4.4 million young Victorians are eligible for a 2023 booster dose. So the Chief Health Officer has recommended to wear a mask, a high-quality, well-fitted mask to protect you and others from the virus, to get your 2023 booster, uh, let fresh air in, so open your windows and doors when you can so that it reduces the spread of the virus, um, get tested if you have symptoms, um, and talk to your doctor if you are at risk falling sick. You may be eligible for COVID and influenza medicines. Early testing and diagnosis are important, so with um, expanded criteria, more people are actually eligible for COVID medicines. Well, Victoria moves to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 12, despite criticism that it's not enough. Every child should be able to go to school, have a safe home to live in, and be supported to learn from mistakes. Locking children away in prison can cause them lifelong harm, increases to their mental uh, illnesses or risks to mental illnesses, disrupts their education, and even increases the chance of premature death. This move would also defy advice from the United Nations and human rights groups that children's advocates and Indigenous organisations have pushed for it to be raised to 14 with no exception. There's been some abhorrent uh, media coverage from the opposition saying that it would raising the age of criminal responsibility would allow for, you know, quote unquote, more gang uh, youth to be involved in gang. I think this is quite appalling, completely abhorrent. And the other thing is that the government is refusing to increase job seeker rates despite expert calls. The Albanese government uh, will not substantially lift job seeker payments despite its own poverty experts calling for an increase to the seriously inadequate unemployment support. The current job seeker rate is $49.50 a day, so $49, basically 50 bucks a day, and it puts recipients under the highest levels of financial stress in Australia, according to the Economic Inclusion Committee. The committee, chaired by former Families Minister Jenny Macklin, concluded that on all indicators, job seeker and youth allowance are seriously inadequate and 
this is measured against a range of income poverty measures. So the committee is proposing to lift JobSeeker to 60% of the value of aged pension, which is worth $69.40 a day. In lighter news, happy May Day. The 1st of May marks the celebration of international workers across the globe. Um, This is happening next Monday. It began to show solidarity with with workers in Chicago fighting for an eight-hour day. In fact, Melbourne workers were the first to win that exact demand. In 1856, stonemasons building the extravagant castle-like architecture that still stands today at the University of Melbourne were the first to seriously strike and fight for the eight-hour day. Stonemasons were subjected to really horrible and dangerous work. Because street lamps were uh, introduced, stonemasons were actually made to work longer hours that spilled into the night, something like 16 hours for a day's work. From putting their tools down, demanding pay and work conditions, it was the stonemasons who set the precedent and were the first to win the eight-hour day in the whole entire world. May Day is a moment of celebration and recognition to past militant workers who have fought for the rights that we now have today. The protest will be held on Monday the 1st of May at the corner of Burke and Swanson Street at 5.30pm. We'll be chatting to one of the student activist organisers, Grace Hill, later this show. And that's all that we've got for the news headlines. Great. Uh, We'll be back with a song right after this. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. Things need topping up every now and then. More tea, auntie. Thanks, bub. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am, streaming online at 3cr.org.au. We're going to play you a song now, and I've been playing this one on repeat. This is by Chinese-Icelandic singer-songwriter and cellist Leve, uh, and she'll actually be in Melbourne uh, performing a couple of shows very soon, and this is her song, I Wish You Love. The bluebirds in the spring to give your heart a song to sing and then a kiss but more than this I wish you love and in July a lemonade to cool you in some leafy glade I wish you health and more than wealth 
was the song I Wish You Love by Leve. We've got a clip, a little snippet from the climate action show with Vivian Langford. Big dairy farming is contaminating and destroying freshwater rivers in Aotearoa and the Fonterra company, which is this big dairy corporation, is their greatest climate polluter. The Climate Action Show's host, Vivian Langford, chats to Christine Rose, a leading agricultural campaigner for Greenpeace Aotearoa, who returned the debris from Cyclone Gabrielle to the company and protests and surrounded Fonterra's HQ with climate crime scene tape. Fonterra has been putting funding towards sustainability without actually outlining what these programs would entail. Vivian and Christine talk about what the climate movement looks like after Jacinda Ardern and the call to have climate action policies as a priority for New Zealand's upcoming elections. You said before that Frontier is very good at greenwashing and they did say after this, you know, many of their farmer shareholders were impacted by the floods and they are all too aware of climate change and they say they are investing a billion dollars in sustainability and methane reduction. Well, can you um, <laughs> debrief us from that comment, or is it is it true that they are doing that? Some of their methane reduction and climate adaptation responses are funded by the government, so by taxpayers, from funds that they contribute nothing towards. So the Climate Emergency Response Fund, for example, uh, which was announced last year, they got over $300 million from that, and yet they contribute nothing to it because they're outside the emissions trading scheme. So, um, you know, there's, again, the, you know, society's bearing the cost while they bank on the profits and, and have this work subsidised. Um, and also, you know, they talk about the billion dollars in sustainability, but they didn't talk about what those programs look like or over what period that money's being spent. 
and they have these um, industry initiatives that when you uh, are in a position to judge the outcomes, it's, it's just more greenwashing. And so we've seen this before when public awareness of the role of big dairy in contaminating our freshwater rivers um, so when when Fonterra, um, when there was a lot of pressure because so many of our rivers have been destroyed because of dairy intensification, which has happened over in just in recent decades, um, there was all this pressure on. And so Fonterra said, oh, well, we're going to develop these sustainability initiatives and we're going to work with the industry to fence stream margins. And actually, in that, it looked really good, but in that time, the water quality of our rivers deteriorated so that 85% of our rivers now, are, uh, they breach d different environmental standards. And so this has been the story of big dairy in New Zealand over the last 30 years. The tipping points get reached and Fonterra, finally under pressure, says, oh, we'll do something, but it's never enough to actually change the situation because it's the intensive model that's the problem yeah. and so um, it's similar with a lot of these initiatives that they talk about it, it's really just a screenwashing to save their corporate image and um, you know when they talk about methane inhibitors and, and these other things um, there is no available treatment for methane that is applicable to the New Zealand farming situation and so there are companies here in New Zealand that are developing a seaweed um, methane yeah. uh, inhibitor, which is being used on Australian feedlots. But we, we are not a feedlot system. 96% of the um, farms are growing on, the cows are fed on grass um, and with the PKE palm kernel supplements. Um, but methane, methane inhibitors do not work in that environment. So, you know, it's techno-fix, uh, magic bullet solutions that just are not and will not address the problem in the real world. And what we really need is for the government to regulate big dairy, to phase out synthetic nitrogen fertiliser and to reduce the dairy herd. That is the only viable option to address big dairy's climate pollution. Yeah, so too many cows, get rid of some Way of them. Too many cows. And then yep. too, uh, too much synthetic nitrogen, so use a, a natural fertiliser. So not that's right. Mm. And actually, a lot of these, um, a lot of these soil types just shouldn't have cattle. And and you know now, as you will have, may have seen on your recent visit to New Zealand, even the high country dry land landscapes um, in the alpine areas are irrigated and fertilised and converted to dairy because the price of dairy products has gone up. And so there are these incentives in the absence of decent environmental regulations for farmers just to convert what it might have been low stocking rate um, sheep and beef to very high stocking rate levels, even in uh, habitats that are, there's no way that this farming, this type of farming should occur there. Yeah, and it's not sustainable, it'll erode the land. Look, just, just for the listeners, one clarification, the nitrogen fertiliser, how is that a, a climate impact? I know to dehydrate the milk, to make the powdered milk, they use coal-fired power. That's coal. But what's the other climate impact of the nitrogen fertiliser? Great question, because the impacts of synthetic nitrogen fertiliser have been largely invisible, except for Greenpeace's work here in Aotearoa. Um, so synthetic nitrogen fertiliser itself is a fossil fuel derivative. And um, 
we produce some of it here in New Zealand, but we import the most of it. And we in New Zealand, the use of it increased by around 700% between 1990 and 2019. And it's um, applied at massive volumes on the pastures to supercharge the grass growth so that these huge number of cows can be maintained. And But it's a um, really significant greenhouse gas emitter in its own right. Um, what, what happens is when the cows eat the grass that's been fed on all this synthetic nitrogen fertiliser and the uh, you know digestive fermentation in the cow's tummy, uh, changes it to nitrous oxide and so then um, as they pee and poo onto the grass um, it's released into the atmosphere but it also works its way through the soil and that's problematic because now across New Zealand many communities are impacted by uh, water contamination so that their water now exceeds World Health Organization limits of what's safe to drink. So not only does synthetic nitrogen fertilizer create more emissions than the New Zealand domestic aviation sector, but it also enables this massive dairy herd growth and is contaminating both fresh and drinking water. Oh, thank you. Look, that's really clear. Thank you very much. We're talking to Christine Rose, Greenpeace Aotearoa New Zealand. Now, Christine, just to finish, um, there's another Greenpeace story. I don't know if you'd like to comment. The Greenpeace people were arrested um, I think on the high seas, as they tried to stop some shell infrastructure going to the North Sea oil drilling area. Uh, what happened there? Tell the bit the story about what happened to them. Well, in that case, um, the shell activists were raising awareness of the um, incredibly dangerous, but probably more widely known impacts of fossil fuel extraction up there in the North Sea. And the need for these fossil fuel companies to pay for their damages. And uh, at the moment, you know, again, those costs are externalised. And, and you know, um, these companies have received windfall profits over recent years of huge, huge quantums. And um, so as we see, you know, it's often the poorer communities of the world that pay the worst impacts from that from climate change. So um, the occupation was to raise awareness of that and um, it did lead to arrests but really successfully highlighted the role of these corporate polluters in um, jeopardising the future of life on earth. To end on a positive note, I hope you're going to tell me it is positive, it was reported that your new PM, Chris Hipkins, announced that the biofuels obligation bill will be dropped. Now that doesn't mean anything to Australian listeners. Can you tell us what biofuels obligation means and, and why that is it good news um it is good news uh, because biofuels in new zealand uh, at risk diverting food crops to make energy uh, because the biofuels obligation required a certain amount of biofuels in our conventional fuel supplies actually food should be for feeding people it shouldn't be for fueling a transport fleet which is by nature uneconomic and unsustainable but this is in the context unfortunately this, this was a, a good policy to reject, but at the same time, the Prime Minister has also put on a, on a bonfire a whole lot of other important climate policies, such as reducing speed limits, a scheme that subsidised uh, our poorer people to be able to get rid of their clunky, old, inefficient cars and trade them in for EVs. And so actually, um, rather than this biofuels mandate 
rejection being a good thing in itself. It's actually just a whole scale rejection of climate policies that we're seeing under the new Prime Minister. So as a package, it's a real step backwards. And uh, um, we, we joke that um, that Chris, Chris Hipkins, the new Prime Minister, is rescinding Jacinda and the aspirations that she had for New Zealand to address its climate emissions. Mm. Well, when I was in New Zealand, campaigners, climate people told me, oh, well, don't be so starry-eyed about Jacinda Ardern. This is back before Christmas. And now I'm very sorry to see that she's left the political stage, but I hope she looks after herself and comes back on the international stage. That's my hope. But what, um, what, what's your view on, well, where New Zealand is heading in climate action? I mean, it sounded so good from Jacinda Ardern. It sounded like a big, clear pathway was in place. I imagine Hipkins will be pulling back and emphasising bread and butter issues. But what's your take on where New Zealand's? You have to inspire us in Australia because we're so far behind you. <laughs> Say something to us. But I, I imagine it's been a big blow. But tell us where you think it's heading. Where are you? Thanks. Yeah, well, we were very disappointed in Jacinda ultimately because she was really good at presenting this positive image on the global stage but was not any good at implementing the changes needed to send New Zealand in the right direction. So that was really disappointing, a lot of broken hearts, I think. But it's made worse by Chris Hipkins, who um, is, is positioning himself much more to the centre-right. And he's saying he's saying it's bread and butter, but, of course, climate change is a bread and butter issue. And we're seeing, you know, people can't even afford butter in New Zealand, even though we're, you know, this huge producer of butter. And I guess the hope does lie, compared within Australia, that um, this week new polls uh, um, showed that 54% of New Zealanders want more urgent action on climate change. Um, but but the contrast with Australia lies in that um, we don't get arrested for protesting about the climate. Well, we might get arrested, but there aren't rules. We don't have the same ag-gag rules that much of the world has. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, we were really heartened to hear that the protesters on the Sydney Harbour Bridge um, have have been um, not treated too badly because we're really worried about the precedents where, you know, these people that are actually acting in the public interest can can be locked up for years. So, you know, that's really unjust. Um, so I think New Zealand's um, political culture that, you know, we, like we can know in Greenpeace that we can go and do an action and that we won't get beaten up by the police and that, um, you know, the the punishments are not too harsh. And so we are seeing a rebuilding of the climate movement. It, you know, it did get a bit dispir dispirited um, during the Jacinda years. Um, but we are back with force and we are mobilising and it's election year for us. And we will make sure that this is a climate election and that climate change and its consequences are to the fore and that every politician knows that we're serious and that there is no action for the future of New Zealand without serious climate action on Big Dairy. That was Christine Rose, one of the leading agricultural campaigners for Greenpeace Aotearoa. And that was a little snippet from the Climate Action Show with host Vivian Langford. We're going to play you another song now. This is the latest track from Yara, who is a Palestinian Nam-based soul singer-songwriter and producer. This is her song, Bad Behaviour, and just a warning, um, there is some spicy language with this one. <laughs> Thank you. 
the song Bad Behaviour by Yara. We're going to share a clip for you now from yesterday's show of Women on the Line. Host Ayan Shorwa brings you Auntie Elma Thorpe's testimony at the Uruk Justice Commission. Auntie Elma Thorpe is a Gunditjula elder and activist who helped establish the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. This episode discusses themes that might be distressing to listeners for crisis support Call Lifeline on 13 For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who prefer culturally appropriate care, call 13 YARN. That's 139276. We begin this next segment with Auntie Alma explaining why her mother Edna had to leave the mission at age 14. When the half-caste act came in, I think it was in the 1930s, and um, probably you should that lady there would know, well, she'd written that kind of thing. But in the 1930s, before that was the Assimilation Act, then that, they found it was getting a bit out of control, the Assimilation Act. Then they started to think, um, in the 1930s, they changed it to the Half-Caste Act. So that meant then the people that were born on, on missions, like my mother was born, 
she wasn't born there, but she was lived there. And her granny's um, under that act that they they would not provide. So there was no provisions for the people under the half parks that, like they did, like for the as they termed the full blood Aboriginal, they got um, food and all that type of thing. But under the half caste act, you didn't get it. Because I remember that um, my grandfather, George Clark, and all his brothers, they had used to have to cut wood to earn money to pay pay for food. But they didn't get free food. And if if the, if the full blood lady up the road gave you food, they got they got taken off them. You weren't allowed to. Um, no sharing. No sharing. You weren't allowed to share, even though it did happen. You know, but that under that act. So therefore, they moved the people who they termed as half caste, and they could be black-looking people, black, and uh, but I don't know how they termed half caste. But once you were half caste, you were not entitled to support. I, I, I can't put it anyway. I mean, Lake Conda was pretty tough, and and um, and and I don't know about. Um, the other, uh, late tyres was pretty tough, and so, but they were. Uh, I seen the missions as concentration camps, and they and that's how they gathered up the Aboriginal people from around the country, who were dis, who were lost, and put them into concentration camps, and under under those under those terms of a um, of living on a mission, you had to um, you weren't allowed to visit anybody. You had to carry a. a a, a card to say who you were, and you could not walk off the mission without permission. So you were curtailed on that type of thing. Framingham was a little bit freer, and they were think they called the naughty, the naughty people's country, a bit freer. So the blackfellas, when they played up, they could run to Fram, because um, on Conda, couldn't even add. Well, Conda was very strict. Um, if you and the Aboriginal people wanted to have corroborees and all that type of thing, but the uh, the the, um, the ministers or the preachers they were very strict, and uh, if they did a, a corroboree, they were worshipping the devil, so that was very weren't allowed to be, so that was cut out. So we never knew nothing about who who our our tribal people were, and that's why well, it's very hard to even talk, even on this commission, is about being an Aboriginal person because we're, we're termed in this thing of, of who we are and how, how are you. Everybody's got a different story. And, I mean, I just, I just know that so many lost people that never had a connect, who didn't know anything about their tribal people, and that's what we can't find, and and it's been um, the massacres. And I think this truth telling commission, I'd like it to look at the massacres that went on in that time, because at, at the time of that those massacres, it massacred so many people that left the um, the residue, as you would say, of people who didn't know who they were. So. So I mean, I've been trying to work with people. I can't say I'm. I'm I, I can't say that I'm um, culturally. They've taken my culture. 
so I haven't got that to look at. And I know now I travelled around this country here, and I went to Uluru once, and I went up to talk. When when we were setting it, I mean, until 70s, we didn't have a voice. Then we started to have a voice. I went to Uluru, but because I was there, they said, you can't talk, you're a yellow fellow. And I went as a part of our national body, which was the health workers. You know, you know all about the yellow fellows. And so you, you had the... Um, I, I, I just said to the old fellows, I said, oh, man, I said, I'm, a, I'm an Aboriginal woman from Gunjitmara and I've got permission to talk and I'd like to talk. I, I'm very, I was very respectable about whose land I went on and always had permission. I would never go on anyone's country without permission. And that was one of our things that we did. You just didn't barge in and, and say who you were or whatever. But um, it was, it was, um, was eye-opener because um, I, I know I was a yellow fella. But I, and when I talk, when I sort of met all of the top-end people and they got their, their full bloods and all that, and I had one old man come up to me and said, the Victorian people protected us. They could, they bore the brunt of of and turned us into half caste because. But what's happening in the top end now is um it's very bad. It's not good. Mm. And and Auntie, in your witness statement, just you were talking before about um, the massacres and now about um, the Victorians bearing the brunt. You give some evidence about um, the massacres in the Western District and some kids hiding. Um, what do you know about that story? Well, I don't know of the massacres. In, I know that um, the Mortlake tribe, was, which was my great-grandmother's tribe, was the Mortlake tribe. I don't know nothing about it. I'm trying to find out the Aboriginal name that she had. But I know in the, in, in, um, the Gippsland mob, when, um, when, that, when the massive... Massacres were happening there. Two two brothers were kids there, and, um, were watching the massacre in a log. They were hiding, and they turned out to be Elsa Thorpe, uh, old Bill Thorpe. They named him Thorpe, and another fellow they named Thomas. But they were two brothers. But they seen massacres. They seen the killing of their people. But but to identify a massacre site. And I, I don't know. I, I'd like evidence of the ma massacre sites that, and I think that our responsibility is that, as this justice commission, is to find out what really happened in those 1800s, early 1800s of the massacres. And, and Victoria would have helped the most massacres. So if you've seen a map of the massacres, Victoria is covered in massacres. So there is a history. And, you know, like the sort of the Rajabalik people, they were the top of, um, I can't even think the country. I've only been there once or twice. Um, but they have um, a lot of the people from the Rajabalik people, and they were, like you mentioned the name, Harrisons, and I mean, I've known people of just no names. But, you know, all them names are names that were given to us, given to us by white people. Landowners, cattle owners, sheep owners, and Dixons 
in the in Framingham were the biggest sheep owners of all times, Dixons, and we got the our my great grandmother got the name Dixon. Then you find out that um, the um, great grandmother Lovett got the name of um, of um, McDonald. And the McDonald's were the biggest cattle owners around Lake Honda and all of that. So they gave them the names of white men to protect those half-castes. And that's what happened is that the half-castes got a name so they would be protected. And I don't know how we were protected, but you got a name because that your Aboriginal name was thrown away. You didn't know it. So I don't know. I'm still lost. Honey also um, gives some evidence in your witness statement about slavery. Now, some white fellows say there has never been slavery in this country. What what do you have to say about that? Well, I suppose it depends on what they would call slavery. And I can quote one 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 lady, and she was born a Wajabullet woman actually, and married married an Austin. And um, her and her sister were taken into a, a, a farm from the early ages, and they were slave. They were slaves to that owner, and she she worked the. She's still around. I can tell you her name is. Um, 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 so it's um. Tricia, um, no, I can't think of her name. But she married, she had a child. Um, she, still, she was still fighting that in court years later, being taken away and being reared on this place as, as labourers, as workers. And um, they were, of course, it was um, to do with um, taking of rape and all that type of thing. And um, she's my cousin. <laughs> but... Um, she went to court and she was stolen, stolen, as I say, they were stolen and made to work. That happened in Lake Tyres. People were taken away when they were children, put into a workforce in cattle farms or wherever. And I can't say about it. I know there was one, I was told that there was a, there was a, a slave place at, at, um, at the base of the Grampians and, um, and, um, that, because they had... What, Auntie, they, what time period was that? Be, um, it wasn't in the 30s, let's put it that way. 1800s. And it was the gathering up of black people and herding them into different places. So they had to put... There must have been a lot of black fellows around. So they had to put them somewhere. They had to work them or they had to kill them. Because if they were doing... they going through a massacre... Yet there was the remnants of all those people. So what happened to them? And I still wonder today what happened to them. And we're still trying to find out who we belong to. But we can only go through a white man's name. And we can't go through a, a, through a, a, our tribal names because they were really taken, they were really bashed and not, not there, not in Victoria anyway, I don't believe. That's my opinion. We're going to stop Auntie Alma Thorpe's testimony here. You can listen to her testimony in full on the Uruk Justice Commission website. If any of Auntie's testimony caused you distress, please call Lifeline on 13 
1114 or 13YAN. Uh, that was Auntie Alma Thorpe's testimony at the Yurik Justice Commission as heard on Women on the Line. The Yurik Justice Commission is a truth-telling process that bears witness to the injustices experienced by First Nations people. We'll be back with our interview with Grace Hill right after this. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. We'll be chatting to a student activist from the Get a Room campaign, which is a student-run initiative led by NUS Education Officer Xavier Dupay, which organises action to fix the rental crisis, and more recently they're organising a May Day rally. I was reading the caption for the upcoming May Day rally, and it says the rental affordability snapshot showed that last year there was one single rental in Australia that is affordable for students living fully on youth allowance. That's crazy. Just 720 rentals in the entire country are affordable for a full-time minimum wage worker. That's like really, really, really shocking. So yeah, May Day is like also obviously really, really important day. It's a day to fight for workers' rights, to increase you know, wages, better work conditions, all that sort of stuff. And in our little headline before, we had a a little chat about the eight-hour day and why that's really, really important. And so we're going to be joined by the National Union of Students LGBTI plus officer, Grace Hill, who is an activist, part of Socialist Alternative, and has been core to organising the calf rallies against neo-nazis in melbourne and posey parker welcome grace so it looks like we're having just a few uh, difficulties with our phone line at the moment so we're going to try and get uh, grace back on the line um maybe while we do that we might listen to a song just to keep us going so Umi is Tierra Umi Wilson, who is an African-American and Japanese singer and songwriter from Seattle. Um, And uh, this is her song, Wish That I Could, remixed by Melbourne DJ and Memphis LK. Just get a show you 
song wish that i could um it also has an incredible remix by melbourne dj memphis lk who i've just learned is paul kelly's daughter that's crazy um definitely listen to that it's such a banger um we will be right back after these messages that's going for our rights trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have and so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 
855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. like to reduce your risk of dementia, the Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. Yay! We've now got um, the National Union of Students LGBTI plus Officer Grace Hill, who is an activist part of Socialist Alternative and has been called to organising calf rallies against neo-Nazis in Melbourne and Posey Parker. Welcome, Grace. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, thanks so much for jumping on air, especially this early in the morning. Um, let's just get to know you a little bit. How did you first get into activism? Was there a certain issue that radicalised you and made you want to organise today? Yeah, um, so I got into activism actually um, after meeting a socialist alternative club at my university campus. Um but as a high school student, um, <clears throat> I'd always wanted to organise protests. So I felt really passionate about everything, really. Inequality, sexism, LGBTI rights, um, Palestine, how Australia treated refugees. But in particular, I really wanted to organise protests um, for marriage equality and against homophobia. But I just felt like all these issues are so big, like I've just got no idea where to start. But... When I met some socialists, um, it sort of helped me tie all of that together and connect all of the different issues that I cared about um, to the system of capitalism and really just helped me link up with other radical people who wanted to organise around the issues that I did. So um, since then, I've got to participate in lots of different activism, including, um, as you sort of referenced at the start, um helping coordinate a national campaign against a visiting transphobic speaker, uh, Posey Parker. Um, so for anyone who's listening and thinking, hey, that's me, you know, I'm really passionate about all that stuff. I'm not sure what to do. I would just highly recommend diving into it and becoming um, an activist. Uh, it's uh, definitely very needed in Australia and um, you absolutely won't regret it. Amazing. Well, let's talk about the Get A Room campaign um, specifically. Can you paint us a picture of what you guys are fighting for, what the campaign stands for? Yeah, so the Get A Room uh, campaign that um, the National Union of Students is organising is really in response to the just outrageous housing situation that students and young people are facing. So um, if you're a student and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to live in like purpose uh, a built student accommodation, like the, the campus accommodation services, um, you're looking at a situation now where about 19 people like you will be competing for every single bed in that accommodation. Mm-hmm. And if you're 
the lucky duck that gets the bed, um, you're often looking at paying between $490 to $800 a week in rent. Um, and if you go into the private rental market, you know, maybe it's cheaper, but it's just still appalling. So um, it's almost 40% that rents have gone up by in the last three years. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg when you think about all the other problems people face living in just substandard, filthy uh, accommodation, the threat of being evicted ha- hanging over your head. Um, and that's all just connected to the issue of the housing market and house prices in Australia. So um, they've risen over 400% in the last 25 years. And um, really for the richest people in this country, the property market has just been a golden goose. So while some of us are slumming it, um, there are other people who have made themselves just fabulously wealthy by helping create a situation where the poorest people are priced out. So that Get a Room campaign um, is aimed at demanding some serious action. Um, We know that if the Labor government are just left to their own devices, they'll just continue to do what they're doing, looking out for the banks and the property investors. Um, So we're running a campaign for things like uh, freezes on rent, um, for demanding increases in welfare payments and wages, and also demanding that the rich um, should really be taxed to fund things like increases um, in public housing. And this is a campaign that's uh, running across multiple states in Australia. Amazing. You touched on so many different aspects, just the overall rising cost of living crisis. Even that phrase itself is quite appalling. <laughs> like The fact that ordinary people are absolutely getting messed over um, and are the ones who are paying for this, um, you know, inflation and the rising in rent, etc. I guess like because of all these crises that are occurring kind of under our noses and under the progressive gloss of the Labor Party, like why do you think it's important to be an organised activist in the here and now? I know there's quick dismissal about being an activist without a major political movement that's happening in Australia. What are your thoughts about waiting for a movement to happen or for a revolution to come can you tell us why waiting is too late? Yeah, well, I mean, if we wait, uh, we'll be waiting forever. Um, someone actually uh, has to start something. So if, if you look at the history of every big movement, um, things like the, the student movement through history, campaigns for civil rights, for social justice, um, all of it started with smaller groups of people um, getting organised to fight back. Um, so that's one reason, I think, um, uh, if you just sort of wait uh, for the kind of political movement that could um, win us a better situation, um, you'll be waiting forever. So you've got to go out and fight to make it real. The other side of it really is, um, you know, if not uh, you, who? If if we look around the the Ospol kind of landscape, um, you know, on one hand, like good riddance to Scott Morrison, but you sort of look at what we have now. Um, You've got a Prime Minister who's determined not to offer working-class people or students... Um, much more than uh, empty symbolism. Um, he's talked a big talk about things like women's equality, but then, for example, refuses to increase job seeker, um, which would be like a, a massive um, step forward uh, against the um, uh, kind of dire situation of poverty that many women are in. Um, you know, he talks a lot about his mum in public housing, but won't expand public housing. Um, you know, his government says they're just going to let student debt massively increase um, along with uh, inflation um, and uh, is just presiding over a situation while where normal people are just going backwards 
while, on the other hand, spending hundreds of billions of dollars on things like nuclear submarines and tax cuts for the rich. Um, so if we sit around, sit on our hands and wait, um, certainly there's no one in the government that's going to swoop in and improve the situation for us. Um, we would just be waiting ourselves into an even worse situation. So I think the only situation, the only um, the way really to improve our situation is to start to organise some resistance, um, start to try and make life a bit difficult for the government and try and make students and young people um, a tougher group uh, to get away with uh, attacking or neglecting. Oh, that was just, yeah, that was just, you hit the nail on the head. That was super inspiring. I think especially the part about connecting workers' struggle with students' struggle because historically it's students and workers who've worked together um, to demand pressure and actually win and achieve a lot of the concessions or a lot of the rights that we have today. Like, I, yeah, I think a lot about, um, you know, stu- students um, and workers in the anti-Vietnam War movement mm. as well. Like, you know, students at Monash, like burning conscription draft cards whatever and then like wharfies um basically like striking and stopping aid from um being uh you know moved to to aid the vietnam war so i just yeah i think you're so right about yeah just how everything really is connected and it is a student struggle um speaking on the importance of activist organizing can you tell us why get a room campaign is campaigning for may day rally and a bit about why the day is important um to students as well yeah um well like i've said you know we're in a situation really where the rich are just waging a class war against workers, against um, the poor generally, against students. And May Day, um, some listeners might know, is, is the day of the kind of working class side of that class conflict. So it's the, the international uh, working class day. Um, and it marks the, the day in the 1880s where about 40,000 workers in Chicago um, went on strike to try and win an eight-hour day um, and the time of year when stonemasons in Victoria um, also are downed tools to fight for an eight-hour day. So it's the, the day of our side, um, uh, really, the day of the working class. And um, this year, uh, it's on a, a Monday, um, and the National Union of Students will be gathering uh, students uh, on that day in the city at five o'clock um, uh, on the corner of uh, Swanson and Burke Street. And sort of in the, the tradition of uh, the history of that day, everything it represents, um, we're going to be protesting through the city to demand uh, wage and welfare increases for everyone. Um, so we want welfare payments to be um, livable, to be above the poverty line. We want our wages to be matching um, the cost of living, you know, at a minimum. <laughs> and we think that uh, the rich should actually be taxed up to their ears um, to pay for things like, you know, affordable, clean, safe, livable housing um, for everyone. So the protests that we're doing will be sort of touring past uh, several uh, hotspots of uh, wealthy scumbaggery uh, in the city. <laughs> and, um, you know, we really invite uh, the listeners to join us, to be part of um, the kind of historic tradition of May Day um, and also uh, just to be part of the Get a Room campaign and for uh, fighting for something uh, better uh, for uh, students today. So, as you said, like, just the phrase, the cost of living crisis, um is so sickening, like the idea um, that there should be a cost to stay alive (laughs) and that that cost is increasing um, year on year, month on month. 
um, we're calling on um, all students, but also um, anyone else that's uh, supportive uh, of the demands that we're talking about um, to hit the streets, to protest uh, against the rich um, and to protest uh, for a better deal for our side. Amazing. Thank you so much. And yeah, I think it's just like the stories that you were telling about the workers downing their tools in Chicago and even in Melbourne, you know, Melbourne being the first place ever to win the eight hour day internationally. It's like these workers did not wait for those sitting, those intellectuals, quote unquote intellectuals on parliament um, sitting. um, We didn't wait around for them back then and students and workers aren't going to wait for the parliament to give us those rights today. So I think, yeah, I'm super excited for May Day. (laughs) Thanks so much grace for chatting with us no thank you and see you at the protest <laughs> see you that was grace hill the nus delegate uh for the lgbti officer and we were just talking about the May Day rally that they're organizing for monday 1st of may and yeah we'll be back after a few announcements i've had a few jobs over the years none i've really loved a mate suggested i use my skills to teach turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand in a secure career I love. Come on kids, gather around. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Dr. Jessica Hampley is a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law and is co-director of the Law Reform and Social Justice Program. She is a socio-legal scholar with interests in access to justice for people seeking asylum, asylum law and procedure, refugee rights, gender and migration, legal professions and radical lawyering. Uh, just has worked with a number of grassroots migrant and refugee rights organisations, including Bristol Refugee Rights and Lesbos Legal Centre, as well as Samos Legal Centre. Just joins us on today's show to talk to us about Australia's cruel refugee policies and how they have impacted policies in other countries. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Jess. Hello, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Uh, And thank you so much for making the time to speak with us this morning. Thanks very much for having me. So last month, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak spoke at a podium with the words Stop the Boats, a slogan that we in here in so-called Australia are very used to seeing. Can you tell us more about this rhetoric that's being used in the UK and the impact that Australia has had on this? Yeah, um, great question to start with. So I think the the sort of export goes back much further than you know, just last month, Rishi Sunak speaking behind that podium. Uh, for years now, Australia has kind of been um, 
almost celebrated by right-wing leaders around the world for having these really brutal policies. And it's something really extremely worrying to see how far-right leaders in, you know, around Europe, in in Germany, in Sweden, in Denmark, and of course in Britain have taken up this really hard line, what they call the Australian solution. And and really what we're talking about with the Australian, so-called Australian solution is extremely cruel, very brutal, um, very hard policies that try to make it as hard as possible for people seeking asylum um, to actually reach safety um, and be and have the sort of um, be given refugee status in the way that most countries have actually signed up to under international law. Yeah, it's quite sickening to know that, like you said, that is something that Australia is celebrated for and held in such high regard for, for these um really cruel and draconian policies and we know that the impact this has had on people's health and and well-being um has been uh just yeah it's just so um so incredibly difficult and especially during COVID as well yeah absolutely and i think you're right that um you know last month that really ramped up in terms of quite how um explicitly the uk is currently trying to replicate those policies and of course we know that certain personalities from australia have been involved with political leaders in the uk and and again that's not just this year but that goes back over the last 10 years um so we know that tony abbott um alexander downer and other high um, profile strategists have been directly advising the uk government um so of course people People might have heard about the Rwanda plans. Um, essentially, last year, the UK signed a deal with Rwanda so that anybody arriving um, in a so-called uh, illegal but what might be seen as unauthorised way in the UK, that is without some kind of visa um, by boat, will be sent to Rwanda uh, asylum claim processed. Um the difference in the UK is that there's a fairly uh, strong, robust human rights framework there. So over the course of the year, there have been various legal challenges to the decisions that were made under that new policy. And those are still in the courts at the moment. And so uh, no one has actually been sent to Rwanda yet. Um, but, the, the, you know, the, the plans are very much still in, in motion, unfortunately. Yeah, and there's something quite twisted about um, you know, part of part of the bill, what it, what it's called, that partnership between the UK and Rwanda, being called like a migration and economic development partnership. Um, yeah. You know, it really hides, it really hides its true intentions, and and that is to ensure or make it really difficult, like you said, or make it impossible for people who who um, who want to settle in the UK um, that they yeah will then send them to Rwanda instead. But yeah, that wording, that naming of that um, that partnership is is really something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those kind of um, the naming and sort of the euphemisms that go with it sometimes are really quite disgusting. They mask a lot of um, really uh, sort of intense and deliberate cruelty that underlies some of those policies. Um, so, for example, with the Rwanda plans, and this is, a, a, you know, a direct influence from Australia, the whole thing is, is uh, 
based on the idea that there are no exceptions. So, for example, there's um, in the UK, there's a, a trafficking framework and, and protections around uh, modern slavery for people who might have been trafficked into the country. Well, none of that will apply for people. So that puts um, certain groups, I mean, especially women, but we know that men are obviously trafficked as well um, at very high risk. Um, there's no exemptions for children, so children would also be subject to mandatory detention and then um, sent to Rwanda within a few weeks. Um, so yeah, these these policies are really extremely cruel, and it's so depressing to see how not only is is Australia still, I mean, on both sides or all sides of the political. Um, spectrum still actually wedded to these policies, but that they're now gaining such traction um, around the world. Yeah, and we'll get to um, some some updates within Australia's refugee policies in just a moment. But just to uh, continue with what you were saying, Jess, that you know a, a lot of these policies are obviously incredibly cruel and harmful to everyone, but especially women, children, and, and queer people. Can you tell us further about this and how this Rwanda policy will impact these groups of people? Yeah. So essentially, what happens is people. The idea is that. Um, on arrival in the UK, you'd be detained pretty much straight away. Um, and you might have some kind of screening or admissibility inter- admissibility interview, but generally things will happen at such a pace that groups which you would hope would be protected from further harm, and which in, in fact the UK has said, um, you know, under international law, it, it won't send people to places where they face um, a high risk of experiencing harm. Well, actually, those people probably will be sent on to um, countries that, where their lives will be at risk. So we know that, for example, um, in Rwanda, being gay or lesbian itself isn't a criminal offence, but um, members of LGBTQ plus community do face high levels of stigma and enhanced discrimination. Um, There's no legal recognition for trans identities there. Um, The police in that country have used uh, public morality laws to target people. Um, So we do know that people being sent to Rwanda will experience, not only will they not be recognised necessarily as as refugees, but they will also experience ill treatment, um, you know, arbitrary arrest, detention, um, other kinds of degrading treatment if they're sent there. So that's really worrying. Yeah. Now, turning back to Australia, last month the Albanese government voted against the migrant uh, Migration Amendment Evacuation to Safety Bill 2023. Uh, this bill, introduced by Green Senator Nick McKim, proposed to urgently evacuate 150 refugees still held in detention in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. Can you give us some more detail about this? Yeah, so what that bill would have done, as you say, is provided a way for those people um, to be evacuated and come back to Australia. And we think there's somewhere around 150 people still being held offshore in PNG and Nauru. Um, The Albanese government kind of has committed to ending um, offshore detention like that. But as you say, the bill was voted down um, and that was rejected by parties across the political spectrum, um, you know, which is, I think, quite revealing about refugee policy in Australia. There has been some softening with the new government, but actually they're still committed to some of the really hardline stuff, um, a lot of which is focused around uh, deterrence 
instill this idea that you have to have these hard policies in place because otherwise um, people will continue to come or whatever, which we know, you know, from so much research now that that is incorrect. It's misguided. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't actually um, stop people coming. There's there's loads of research now that says people generally are not making decisions based on the migration policy um, in in place in the country where they're trying to reach. Um, that, that just simply isn't true. Um, so, yeah, with regard to the, the, the migration amendment bill, um, I think it's really important to actually still keep pressure on politicians. Um, obviously, law can't do all the work, um, but I think that that bill would have provided um, a relatively humane and fair way to evacuate the refugees who are still being held in offshore, um, well, on, on Nauru and PNG. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really good point to make there, Jess, that, you know, with this new government, it's it's perhaps even more crucial now to keep up the pressure, um, write to your local MPs um, and really push for um, push for radical policies that yeah. will ensure that refugees and asylum seekers can, um, you know, be settled here and be given the appropriate um, care um, that they need and that they deserve um, in order to be here. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I did want to touch on this conversation that you had with Professor Kim Rubenstein from the University of Canberra last week. Um, you were both in conversation with each other about the so-called Australian solution, so looking into Australia's refugee policies. Um, can you tell us some of the issues that uh, were raised in this discussion and anything in particular that um, that really stood out for you? Yeah, so um, the aim of that meeting is really, it's an annual meeting that the Refugee Action Campaign in Canberra holds um, after the, the Palm Sunday rallies. And I'd spoken at it last year. And at that time, I wasn't really sure about what was happening with Rwanda policies, because at that time, um, England has also tried to introduce um, a, a boat turnbacks policy, which had been struck down. So anyway, that was kind of the entry for the meeting. Um, but Professor Kim Rubenstein, whose expertise is more in kind of citizenship and constitutional law, made some really interesting points about um, the voice referendum and how, you know, what's at stake is actually something much bigger around Australian citizenship and who belongs here um, and kind of legacies of trying to keep people out and, and nation building around particular visions of whiteness and around who who ought to be seen as Australian and not and she I mean she's the real expert there so I would encourage people to read her work if they're interested um, but I thought that was a really powerful point to make um, and kind of draws us back to things about how struggles are often interrelated um, and you know calls for inclusion are are bigger than thinking about just certain groups it's a bigger question of how we want um our society to be and how we stand in solidarity with each other i think yeah and i think that's the perfect note to end on is that reminder that like you said it's a joint struggle um mm. that you know the types of the types of oppression that one group face um, isn't necessarily different to another group and and like you said we should all be in solidarity with each other to push back against um uh, against 
you know, capitalist, colonial, patriarchal powers that that yeah. try to oppress us all. So um, a great point to end on. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Jess, for joining us on the show today. I think it's really important to keep up with what's going on regarding what's happening um, with refugee policy, not only here, but uh, overseas as well, because like you said, Australia has had a lot of impact and influence there. Um, but yes, thank you again for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Jessica Hambly from ANU College of Law speaking to us about uh, refugee policies here in Australia and also in the UK. Uh, we'll be back with a chat about um, gay marriage in India right after this. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Complex hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada, and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. Welcome back to 3CR Radio. Well, we've got a bit of time now to chat about what's been happening in India. Carnegie, can you kick us off here? Sure thing. So um, about six days ago, seven days ago actually now, um, dozens of petitions from LGBTQI plus couples and activists from across India were brought to the Supreme Court as part of a collective lawsuit fighting for marriage equality. Um, the case is currently being heard and is at this stage expected to go for two weeks. Um, this comes on the back of homosexuality being decriminalized in India in 2018 when the Supreme Court struck down the colonial era law that criminalized it in 1861. So prior to the British um, coming to India and colonizing uh, homosexuality, different genders, everything was a very normal part of Indian society, particularly in um, Jain and Hindu scriptures. Um, in India, uh, religion and culture are pretty intertwined, All like lots of religions, not just those two, but um, particularly in those two religions, as, um, you know, as far back as you can go, lots of examples of this being completely normal part of society um yeah so the the big change came with colonization where we've talked um quite a bit on this show about how the british particularly but lots of colonizers um really liked to put in a binary where they went so it was everything was black and white a or b um in india of course they brought in the gender binary where you had to be the male or female um this was based entirely on sex. The, the nuance and the grey areas that previously existed were kind of erased. Um, while there's been a visible increase in gay pride marches and representation of, in pop culture and Indian society, there's still a very long way to go before we kind of go back to uh, accepting it as a normal part of society. Um, there's still a lot of stigma around same-sex um, relationships, around um, people who are trans, around the general culture, um, despite the newfound visibility. 
The Modi government has actively opposed the legalization of same-sex marriage, saying that the concept is, and I quote, urban elitist, and that it undermines the country's religious and social values. This despite providing no actual data to back it up. Um, and it, in fact, goes against the country's historical, religious, and social values. Um, in response, the petitioner's lawyers have pointed to their clients who come from a spectrum of class and caste from across urban and rural India and don't represent any single part of society in any way. The government also submitted in court that marriage can only be between a biological man and woman and that a decision this big should only be made by parliament and shouldn't be made in court at all. The judges refuted this immediately by asking if the notion of gender was absolute based on their sex and argued that gender identity is in fact far more complex. A lawyer for the petitioners argued that reproductive capacity can't be a factor in allowing people to marry as many heterosexual couples are unable to conceive for a variety of reasons. And when the ability of same-sex couples to parent was questioned in court, the petitioner's lawyers, um, as well as the judges, pointed to the many instances of children being unsafe in heterosexual family structures, particularly because of domestic violence, generally perpetrated by the man. Couples bringing the case to the court have said it's incredibly important for gay marriage to be recognized in a country like India, where marriage as a concept holds an enormous amount of cultural importance and it allows for practical benefits like opening a joint bank account or giving your partner medical consent or inheritance being transferred. The case is also pushing for the rights of trans people who to have their relationships and families of choice legally recognized. One of the lawyers who identifies as queer has said that this case will impact society on a much broader scale, allowing for marriage equality, regardless of sexuality, religion, gender, or caste. I think similar to what Jess was saying before, there's a lot of um, moral policing that goes on in India, particularly under the current government, and a win for this would likely mean more tolerance across the board for everybody. The same lawyer has said that the government's argument against same-sex marriage is dehumanizing and disenfranchising, and that it is a wider project of the government to shift away from India's democratic values, which we're seeing across the board with this government. India seems to be moving further and further away from a democracy, despite purporting to be one, um, which is incredibly worrying. If India does recognize same-sex marriage, it will be the second country in Asia after Taiwan to do so. Um, and most recently, just on Sunday, the Bar Council of India passed a resolution requesting the Supreme Court to leave the issues of marriage equality to the parliament um, and to stop the proceedings so that the government can make a umbrella decision for everybody. Um, while it's looking promising from the lawyers and the judges' responses, to the bogus arguments put forward by the government. Um, things like this are incredibly worrying and things could go either way. So we will keep you updated on 3CI Tuesday Breakfast. Um, hopefully, we're hoping for the best and marriage equality gets passed. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for that update. I think it's really important to note, like you just did, Carnegie, that prior to British colonisation, mm-hmm. none of these things were an issue. In fact, it was just part of... Indian society um, and yeah I guess it's 
having to undo a lot of the damage that yeah, really goes against did. the arguments that the government makes. Mm. So it, it is really important to keep in mind. Well, uh, that's all we have time for on today's show. Um, so just to give you a quick rundown of what we uh, had for you this morning. So first up, we heard from uh, Christine Rose, who's from Greenpeace, who uh, had a chat to Vivian Langford on the Climate Action Show about uh, pollution by Fonterra Company in Aotearoa. Um, afterwards, we heard from Artie Alma Thorpe, who brought her testimony at the Uruk Justice Commission, and this was replayed on uh, Women on the Line. We then spoke with Grace Hill, who is part of the Get a Room campaign, and she spoke about um, May Day and the importance of, um, you know, fighting back. Uh, and then we also heard from uh, Dr. Jessica Hambly, uh, speaking to us about refugee rights. Tune in to 3CR Breakfast tomorrow from 7am, and we'll be back next week week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.